Well, welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Harry Edwards, and this is a show where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Uh, again, I'm Harry Edwards, your host for this evening, and joining me in the studio is Dr. Jacob Daniel. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Harry. That's Good great. to be here. It's just the both of us tonight. Oh, yes. It's just us. <laughs> so Lenny is missing We're going to have out. fun. No, that's okay. To be fair, I didn't ask Lenny. Uh, I know to come here to the studio is like $100 nowadays, so it's so expensive with gas prices through the roof. Yeah. So... But Lenny, but we're gonna miss him. Yeah, we're gonna miss sure. him. Uh, but Lenny's gonna join us next week, though. Yeah, and we're gonna continue our discussion on um, Carl Truman's book. So that's gonna be fun. But tonight we're gonna be talking about something that Jacob presented at a recent conference, a conference that was held at Biola University, put together by our good friends from Reasonable Truth. Uh, so that was really good. Maybe you can give us a little bit of an update on that. And what was the the main thrust of, of the uh, event? And do you think that uh, the videos will be made available? You think so? Others could listen in. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it will be available on the reasonabletruth.org. Um, mainly the plenary sessions and then audios for the breakout sessions. Um, the thrust of the conference was basically to help the church engage with questions what we usually don't engage with within the church setting. So uh, the idea was basically to provide that avenue to discuss two important topics. One was on human dignity and the other, the role of the government. So um, tackling basically one of the major questions that we have, what does it mean to be a person? And how we answer that kind of informs uh, our public behavior uh, our ethics, uh, our social ethics, and how we engage on policy matters and things like that. And basically uh, also talking about, you know, what is a Christian's role in all this? Do we even have a role? Mm-hmm. Um, or are we just supposed to just uh, be doing what we do on Sundays, getting together and worshiping? Or should it actually extend beyond the four walls of our church? No, that's super important, especially nowadays. Uh, how we view theology uh, dictates h- how government functions and how we interact with government and actually how government is formed, how government uh, serves the people or not serve the people. All of that is tightly connected to theology. In one sense, also dignifying the role of the government as Christians, I think we should appreciate the fact that God is the one who has ordained the deacons. That's what he, the, the term is diaconus for uh, the authorities that God has set up uh, to function uh, and to take care of the civil uh, duties. Yeah. You know, and I think uh, as Christians, we have an obligation to know what those duties and jurisdictions are, so that we may not actually step into the, those spheres uh, uh, and uh, and not also let. Um, the government to actually infringe on what it means to be a church. Yeah, no, that's all good. So I'm excited for that conference and uh, maybe future conferences where you guys are uh, really dealing with the intersection of theology and law and government. Yes. That's something that we need desperately, and you and I, we've had lots of discussions about where the church ought to be in terms of how we view uh, law and government and mm-hmm. public service and, and, and our duties to it as Christians especially, because yeah. it's vitally important. And Dr. Edwards, you have uh, mentioned this already, that you are kind of looking into possibly doing a conference on these topics uh, within the church setting. Yeah. And even if, if our listeners are interested to actually bring in you know, experts on these issues and to basically expose the congregants to really ask good questions around these topics yes. so that we could be uh, faithful citizens uh, of the kingdom of God and yeah. be doing what God has called us to do. When we start, when Christians nowadays start talking about government, politics, law, they always want to do the extreme and call us right-wing nationalists. Mm. And there's always a, a bad, dangerous connotation when it comes to that. When in reality, a lot of our current um, government, a lot of our culture today has really been formed by the Judeo-Christian worldview. Yeah. It's inescapable. 
And yet now, even Christians are embarrassed to bring that up, you know,、mm. for fear that they might be labeled as extremists. Yeah. And, and so that is unfortunate. Every good thing has its counterfeit.、Uh, the reason why we have counterfeit is because that which is good is valuable. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so th- there's a right way of doing that. There's a right way of engaging with、uh, the civil authorities that God has established.、Uh, and as Christians, I think we don't have an option. Um, just like John the Baptist, who, was, who brought、uh, biblical ethics to a pagan king and gets beheaded for that.、Yeah. Uh, right? <laughs>、uh, and we don't see Jesus trying to escape him or, or, or bring him out of that situation. Whereas we find that、um, he fights till the end, and for that reason, he pays the price. And I、yeah. think we are called to do that. We are called to speak truth to the power. And I always say, speak truth to the illegal power. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. People probably have noticed, right? So I'm Filipino here. You're Indian. And yet, we, we feel like we、uh, are, are thrilled and excited about our current culture in terms of the opportunities we have. And we're speaking to American culture and American politics. And my goodness, we, need, we just need more people. It doesn't matter what background you come from. Uh, and maybe a quick message to、uh, our Caucasian white folks don't abandon your roots.、Hmm. That's all I want to say. Don't abandon your rich heritage. Os Guinness would say that a lot. You know, he,、um, he, he's an Englishman, but he always says how he's a fan of the U.S. What he meant by that is、uh, just the, the way historically how that came together. Yeah. With the US Constitution and the founding fathers. And he's a fan of that. I think there's a need for us to really、uh, understand the heritage that we have inherited, right?、Yeah. It's a heritage given,、uh, and regardless of where, what part of the world you might be, if you're a Christian, there's a heritage that we inherit because we belong in the kingdom of God. And we've been given the task of actually translating that into all aspects of our life.、Yeah. But in doing so, I think what is important is that we. Be able to distinguish between the different spheres of sovereignties. And I'm um, uh, you know, b- basically invoking Kuiper here,、mm-hmm. uh, Abraham Kuiper,、uh, his term of sphere sovereignty. And I think it's a beautiful way of understanding that God has established different roles、uh, of spheres within which, and it has its own jurisdiction. And when we understand what that, those jurisdictions are, and when we are accountable. Within those jurisdictions, I think it be,、uh, we create a flourishing society.、Right. And the Western world has seen the outcome of that distinction between those spheres and being obligated to do what we are called to do.、Uh, and when we have, in some sense, displaced God out of his role in all these matters, we have created more chaos and、yeah. we are basically interfering in those different spheres that we shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. No, that's going to be interesting. You bring up a lot of stuff there in what you just said. And I'm, I'm looking forward to unpacking some of those things. Like, for instance,、um, and we didn't rehearse this, right? <laughs> you talked about、uh, in the way you talk, there's a tight connection between God and civics. And、uh, I know you and I talked about this, and it'd be nice for others to hear your view of,、uh, you know, could there really be a.、Um, A civic public square, like a, a real authentic public square, a, a secular form devoid of God. You know, could there really be one? Uh, uh, so th- maybe we'll talk about that later.、Yes. Yeah, maybe later if it comes sure. up. Sure. Because that's not the, the main thing of our show. But、uh, I do want to introduce the title, and this is coming straight from Jacob's presentation.、Uh, he titled it Personhood and the Longing for Dignity. So, we're going to be talking a lot about what human dignity is、uh, connected with that,、uh, the idea or the concept of, of personhood. What is a person?、Mm-hmm. And now, as distinct from apparently human beings. All right. So, we'll talk about that.、Uh, I wasn't really aware of that sharp distinction that many. Now, advocate maybe to、uh, justify, let's say, abortion, right? So maybe we'll talk about that. Well, we'll make sure we talk about that. That's interesting. Uh, so, uh, again, before we get into it, though, I do want to say that、uh, I'd like to remind our listeners that we are supported entirely by your generous donations. And if you find our shows valuable 
and wish to see it continue, please, please support us by liking and sharing uh, this on YouTube, on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and other places where, you know, where, where people look, you know, whatever new social, we're not going to be on TikTok, you know, we're not going to be there, <laughs> but uh, hey, if you can somehow put this on your TikTok, by all means, uh, and you can help us with our radio costs by going to our website, www.apologetics.com, and click on the donate button, and any amount helps, and your partnership will help us remain on the air I know our economy is not doing very well. Some of you guys are on fixed incomes, totally understand. But for some of you who can afford, uh, please, uh, it's nothing is desperate. I don't think anything becomes desperate in, in God's economy. But uh, I just want to be responsible and let you know that uh, this is totally listener-supported. And uh, you'll see all, all sorts of stuff there on our site. We have a certificate program that we launched uh, in the spring, and uh, I would encourage you guys to check it out. If you like to be, if you desire to be better ambassadors for Christ, and done from a cultural perspective, that that's kind of like what we like to do here is cultural apologetics, you might want to check out our certificate program. All right, so again, tonight's topic is on human dignity and personhood, and if you wish to call and participate, you might have a question, please go ahead and give us a call at this number, 888-995-KKLA. That is 888-995-5552. I think that's easy to remember. So, Jacob, um, I know... Before we get into the the main part of the topic, I know that you did your dissertation on human dig- dignity. Mm-hmm. So I want to know, why did you focus your dissertation on that? Uh, I would say there were two reasons. One was more uh, existential and the other was more academic. Uh, uh, existential in the sense that I grew up in India, traveled quite a bit. I lived in the Gulf countries for some time and then moved to uh, the UK for higher studies. Uh, and in my travel and engagement with people and cultures, uh, what I found is that the longing for dignity uh, had been uh, among all people. Um, wherever I've been. However, they had different uh, uh, theological and philosophical and social foundations to justify their way of life. Uh, That was fine until I went to the UK and actually uh, saw the working out of the notion of dignity being intrinsic. Uh, As that was happening, it was in 2011, I actually met with uh, and heard uh, the Princeton ethicist Peter Singer Mm. uh, at Oxford University, and he was giving a talk on the very idea of dignity and uh, personhood. Um, And he'd been arguing uh, for and making a case for uh, an incremental view in the sense that you are not, personhood was not a basic status of an individual, but it, it is something that you basically uh, acquire eventually because of uh, certain criteria or markers of personhood. So that kind of instigated in me an interest to uh, get into this realm of studying personhood and also human dignity. And then later, uh, I got really interested in cultural apologetics, and I found out that, uh, without a doubt, it is one of the most important questions uh, that one should engage with if we are really interested to actually bring in uh, um, the message of the gospel uh, uh, to cultures and how that impacts uh, lives and bring them brings them uh, into the kingdom of God. Uh, and Later, I came to Biola and then did my PhD on that topic, and I was looking at it from mostly from an Eastern perspective. I didn't do much of a comparative studies, but at the same time, um, I was doing more of a pioneer work because absolutely nothing, I would say, is done from that perspective, from an Eastern perspective, mm-hmm. on the topic of human dignity. All right. Well, that's amazing. Now, for some of our listeners who might not know who uh, Peter Singer is— uh, he's a philosopher. He's an ethicist, right? And uh, what, what's he famous for? You might want to 
uh, it, it is rather horrific, actually, what he's known to advocate. Uh, uh, related to this topic, I mean, he advocates delaying personhood to three months after you are born. Um, an argument can be made that, uh, or he would make, is one of that uh, uh, a two-year-old pig would have more value than a newborn baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very utilitarian project. Uh, but then what he also does is that he moves from this utilitarian idea to a preferential idea of dignity or personhood. Basically, he says that you are not a person unless you actually can make a preference for living mm. your life. Wow, okay. Right? So it moves even further from there. So for him, uh, killing a two-year-old is is okay because it's it's not a person yet. N- not that he would make such a claim. Right, he won't say it that uh, but, way. But if you... If you uh, Basically, if the if the if the argument works out, it can be justified for the reason that you're not killing a person, mm-hmm. but just a human being. Right. So, in other words, it wouldn't be murder then. Yeah. For whatever if, reason, if uh, you kill the child, if uh, you, a two-year-old. If rights and morality are attached to personhood, mm-hmm. then you can't invoke any moral judgment if a two-year-old baby is killed. Based on your travels, uh, give me a specific example of, of how you observed various understandings of the concept of human dignity played out in the context of human flourishing. So in other words, would a particular view of human dignity produce a particular kind of society? So what it does is actually there are two notions, uh, and both of them are more like gradient theory. So we create graded persons, right? Um, we, based on uh, the foundational worldview of a culture, uh, it can work out in different ways. Like, like in the Eastern world, you would see that they would assume or they would uh, um, adopt an idea of ultimate reality being impersonal. Uh, and you are basically part of that ultimate reality, living in ignorance. And everyone has an essence of that ultimate reality in them. However, they are found in different stations in life. So you can't basically make an argument that you all are created equal because we are not created. We are living in ignorance and a kind of illusion and in different stations in life because life is circular. It's not linear. Uh, so you, the whole idea of reincarnation and karma and everything works out there. So when that happens, there is no freedom to actually migrate from one state to the another. So there is no argument for flourishing. And that's why justification may be given for someone who is living in poverty. At the same time, uh, so if you travel to Eastern nations, you would find a disparity between people, right? In terms of you would find poor people on the other side, you find ultra-rich people. Mm-hmm. But there's a justification for that uh, on the basis that uh, we can't invoke intrinsic dignity of individuals. Dignity is something that you have to acquire based mm-hmm. on your possession, based on your caste, based on uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the work that you do and things like that. And from an Islamic perspective, if you see, you can't even say that Allah is a person. Being person is a natural category and you can't at, at, uh, attach that to Allah. So you can't basically say that you all are created in the image of God. Mm. That is a very unique idea that only Christianity offers. Mm-hmm. Judeo-Christian worldview offers the fact that we all have the image of God on us. Now, Harry, yeah. you are a Filipino, yeah. and I'm Indian, and yeah. we meet a lot of different people from different cultures. What is it that is common about us, right? Uh, can we say it's, uh, we, are, we, are, we are equal because of language, or we are equal because of uh, uh, geographical location? I don't think so. Yeah. We have more between us that differentiate us, the only foundation that is applicable from a religious perspective that grounds it properly, I think that is what the Christian worldview offers, the fact that we all are made in the image of God. And that works out in a different way. So what happens is that uh, when you believe that we all are created and have that image of God on us, it initiates at least a process. I'm not saying that we would all be perfect in applying that, Let's hope that we can, mm-hmm. but it does work out in society in a different way where every value is li- uh, in, uh, every life is valued. The sanctity of life is maintained, uh, yeah. which you may not find everywhere, unfortunately. You made a g- good point in your talk the other day about how, of course, human 
dignity is connected to personhood. But even before we get there, actually, so I, I did mention in, in the opening statement that you, you're saying, which you taught me something new, that in the secular world right now, they have, uh, or maybe in, in the way they talk about this, they separate personhood and human being, right? Mm-hmm. They do that now. Could you explain what the difference is and why that matters? So I know we're talking about human dignity and that uh, uh, it, it, it's... I know we'll get more detail later, but it is inherent. It's something built in us because we're creating God's image, and that's a Christian thing. But um, the the secular point of view, apparently it's it's no longer uh, a s- sort of a sacred thing that we're human beings uh, because now you could be a human being and not a person. So how, how do they make that distinction, and why is that helpful for the secular project? I think the reason for that is because of uh, scientific advancement that we have, technological advancement that we have to really, you know, uh, look into uh, the womb itself, right? For example, Mm -hmm. an unborn baby. Mm -hmm. And we can see um, uh, the faculties that that baby has uh, correlates with uh, an individual who is born, right? So so there is definitely a regard for that uh, embryo or, or that unborn child to be considered as a human being. It's a human baby. Whereas uh, this idea of... Uh, personhood is seen more as incremental on the basis of certain markers um, uh, of personhood. For example, consciousness, self-consciousness, being aware of oneself, um, having the capacity to have rationality, being able to communicate and things like that. So so what we see is basically this. Uh, uh, If we see pre-medieval and even medieval time, personhood was seen as foundational. Mm -hmm. Personhood preceded right? Uh, 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 Like uh, our being. Mm -hmm. We were human beings, not human becomings, as you pointed out the other day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas that there had been a shift from there, from personhood being foundation uh, to foundations of personhood. Mm -hmm. Now the project had shifted completely. We were looking for what is it that now grounds personhood. Rather than the other way around where it is an absolute entity. Exactly. Exactly. So even there, it, there had been a major shift in this as well, that we were not looking at individuals or persons with potentials, but potential persons. Mm-hmm. Huge shift there, right? Mm-hmm. So as Christians, we regard that we are persons with potentials, but we are not arguing for actuality of those potentials, right? We are not a person because you are able to exercise those potentials. You, you, you are a person because you have those potentials, mm-hmm. You don't have to exercise them to be a person. Right. Whereas now what we make the argument that we are making is one of uh, potential persons, persons who have these markers of yeah. uh, personhood to qualify so as a person. So one is not a person until they reach those markers, right? Exactly. That, that's what the secular project will tell us. Right? So, so th- this is the debate that we have even the ab- abortion law. Basically, the child doesn't have all the markers necessary to be a person. The mother does. So she is more of a person than the baby. That's right. So she has right over that baby. Right, right. And we'll try to unpack that more and and how that plays out in in their worldview, which is a dangerous and and very, um, yeah, sobering idea. But I was just looking at the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, because that's a big deal nowadays, you know, with the war in Ukraine, and uh, it seems like the UN, they all want to get in on this. Um, By the way, it's interesting, too, that I just realized that most of the most of the countries in this planet are part of the United Nations. Did you mm-hmm. realize that? Yeah. It's only literally a few that are not part of it. I it's, think it, there are two nations that are not still part of Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting because I know the uh, UN was really formed in order to prevent the next world war, really. Yeah. That's the whole idea. And so uh, the U.S., uh, U.K., and, you, you know, they were the founding members, and there were only a handful of them. And it's interesting that the world is in chaos, and yet apparently we're all united. <laughs> and you that's know, not the case at 75 all. 75 nations that, came, that formed after yeah. World War II 
basically adopted the, 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 even the term human dignity within their constitution, right. including the nation uh, that I come from, India. Sure, right. Well, anyway, so this Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I pointed out because it was ratified in 1948, so shortly after World War II. And in the preamble, the first, the first few words read this way, whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom justice and peace in the world. So even on a just a cursory read of the first few words of uh, this big document which apparently all nations subscribe to it's not a secret that uh, we all are aware of what human dignity it's inherent and apparently uh, human rights our understanding, our understanding of human rights is based on this idea of human dignity, uh, that it's inherent. But no one actually asks where this all comes from. Yeah. Th- that, that's the interesting thing. And so there's like 30 articles under this Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But nobody, number one, uh, ha- has told us where they come from. Number two, why would anybody have human rights to begin with? Maybe for the remainder of... Tonight, maybe we're coming up on a station break, but uh, maybe we can discuss those two things. Number yeah. one, where where in the world does human uh, rights and human dignity uh, come from? Where is it grounded? And why should anybody care that we have rights to begin with yeah. at all? Basically, there are two questions uh, yeah. where the debate is, what is dignity and what dignity does? We are apologetics.com radio, and uh, we like to challenge believers to think. And thinkers to believe our topic for tonight is human dignity and personhood and um, the longing. Well, specifically, it's personhood and the longing for dignity. So we will be right back after a few messages. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Well, welcome back to the Apologetics.com radio show, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. My name is Harry Edwards, and I have the uh, awesome privilege of having my good friend here to be part of the panel, and this time it's just Dr. Jacob Daniel with us in the studio. How are you doing? Doing good, Harry. This is the second half of our one-hour show, and we're talking about personhood and the longing for human dignity. I should say I feel very dignified to be here. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And I am honored to be here, my friend. <laughs> so, all right. So we did kind of rehearse that one. No, just kidding. But uh, we did, uh, I did ask um, Dr. Daniel here what the difference is between honor and dignity, just to uh, clarify some of our terms here, because maybe honor might uh, sound more familiar to some. Uh, so... What is the difference between honor and dignity? So when I define dignity or I try to define dignity, uh, I basically differentiate between two ideas uh, that undergirds it. Uh, one is in the Western world, we all are kind of used to, because of our um, Judeo-Christian foundation, we have borrowed this idea of uh, intrinsic dignity, which permeates you know, our, our public behavior. Um, basically, the idea is that we are we have value um, for the reason that we the way we are you know, in our being it's intrinsic to us mm-hmm. um, where dignity may be violated but it cannot be annihilated. That's the idea. Whereas there's another idea of digni- acquired dignity, right? It's more the idea of more like a verb where where we. Uh, uh, connected with the idea of dignifying, right? The uh, idea of honoring, uh, the idea of acquiring it on the basis, as I said earlier, on the basis of certain possessions, so, so on the basis of um, you know, what group you belong to, or uh, like or what, human perceived value, perceived value. Yeah. yeah, it is something that you can earn, right, and uh, accumulate, accumulate, right. um, or also it is acquired on the basis of uh, what. Uh, social group you belong to. Mm-hmm. So it's more, uh, so 
so if we have to understand personhood, for example, uh, right? We're talking about dignity also here. Uh, there are two ways to get to it. One is an existential construct view and the relational construct view. Um, uh, there's an essentialist position, right, which is ontologically uh, uh, ontological ca- category all by itself, and that per- where personhood is a state of being inherent and essential to human species. It is not based on any social construct. It is what it is. It cannot be removed by fiat, right? Whereas there's another view of a relational construct view where we, it's a substantialistic position where uh, substance-based, it has to be based, our dignity and our personhood has to be based on certain substance that we actually possess. Um, What's the first view again? What? Uh, existential construct okay. view, basically an essentialist position. Mm-hmm. Um, so under the second view, personhood is a conditional state of value defined by society, Right. Right. Uh, so, in the earlier view, personhood becomes the foundation for many other uh, things in society. Right. Whereas in the second view, uh, you have to basically come to personhood, right? right, based on creating that value spectrum, creating those markers of personhood, and then uh, identifying individuals based on those markers. So, personhood becomes very, very much an emergent property. Uh, it is connected to basically your mind or consciousness or soul or whatever it may be, con- contingent on an evolving biological um, system. Uh, in the in the first view, dignity remains intrinsic, uh, and as I said, it may be violated but not annihilated. In the second, uh, you can basically enter into dignity dignity position status, and you can lose your dignity status. Right? right, as you lose these emergent properties, um, and this is why you know there is also a push. Uh, so, so one way we have, we can understand that is also that the first position where it is intrinsic, it is based on a metaphysical reality. It's ontologically uh, uh, the way it is, right? Metaphysically, it's like that. Whereas the latter kind of dismisses that such a claim. Right, it right. is more, in today's term, it's more of an epistemological position where it is dependent on the language right. that is ever-evolving. Right. And so that's an important uh, distinction to make. When do you think that shift happened? So in the first view, uh, again, I, I think I want to add here uh, through my reading, like I'm going to draw from Moreland here, that that's the absolutist view, which... Uh, personhood is an absolute. It doesn't change. Uh, and again, you can hear some of that language actually from uh, the Declaration on Human Rights mm-hmm. by the Human uh, by United Nations. They they don't get deeper into uh, the philosophy because it's not a philosophy text. But um, wh- when did that shift happen? How did it happen from an absolute uh, understanding of personhood to now? It's degreed properties, right? Where, yeah. uh, or e- even in Peter Singer's idea, uh, it, it depends on function and um, yeah, u- utility. Yeah. How did that? How did that change? If you look at history, you know we can go all the way back to early medieval period, where Boethius actually takes that leap and defines uh, human dignity uh, as a person, uh, uh, or, or or a person is an individual substance of a rational nature, right? Instead of uh, seeing it as an idea of irreducible subsistence, he jumps and makes that leap to an idea of individual substance, individual uh, individuation of the individual, right? The idea is basically, earlier it was irreducible substance. You mm-hmm. can't, a, a human being is a person, right? An ir- irreducible yeah. substance. It's whereas un- now, a- according to Moreland, it's unanalyzable. Yes, right, yeah. exactly. Uh, and I think that that's where the issue is. Uh, since enlightenment, right? right it, it's, we can it, always go to the enlightenment. There's yeah, good and bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's where that epistemic shift happens. And also we want to actually measure everything, right? even our consciousness and thoughts. And that's what's the motivation behind this whole thing, uh, that uh, we have to somehow situate even our consciousness in our brain state or brain function. Right. So it's interesting how we have even moved from, you know, uh, a few years ago we were doing, uh, we had this genome project, right? We were mapping our genome, right, right. physical. Then once we've done that, 
we have we were still left empty in one regard. Seems like it, right? And yeah, so, nobody knew what to do with that. <laughs> so now we are doing more like uh, neural mapping, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Our neurology. That's what we are mapping now. Right, right. Uh, on the hope that we might be able to actually uh, control and manage our own consciousness right. and explain that empirically. So yeah. I think it, it, that's the very temptation that is motivating this project. Yeah, you know, uh, again through my reading. Another view of personhood could be a collection of your memories, hmm. uh, and so it's interesting that a, a lot of movies nowadays, a lot of sci-fi movies, while interesting, uh, they have this plot where perhaps you can just download a bunch of memories from a person somehow. If you could record it, dump it into uh, this robot, and somehow they become a person hmm. uh, because they have all their memories now. Uh, stored in into their whatever their brain whatever that is, so that I thought that was interesting as well. Uh, what, I, I, think I, I know it, you mentioned all right. Let, let's still stick with this uh, yeah. idea of a uh, personhood. So I I know in your talk you might want to mention uh, and, and recap for our listeners what a person is not, and then maybe let's attempt to define what a person again. Knowing that defining personhood is difficult, yeah. and, and that's one. Again, we're going to betray our stance on uh, personhood being unanalyzable, but yet we're we're still going to. What, what we want to do as careful thinkers is put boundaries around these things and frame this at least. So maybe it's true we can say what it is not, while we can't say exactly what it is. Maybe we'll construct a frame. I think that's fair, right? Mm-hmm. So what are uh, attempts? What are failed attempts to define personhood? What are some of those kinds of things? So, uh, so from from materialistic perspective, I mean, there are things like, I mean, you have to have rationality and right. logical reasoning ability. You have to have consciousness, self-consciousness. Self-awareness. Use of language, yeah. ability to initiate actions, some kind of moral agency and the ability to engage in moral judgments and intelligence, right? right. Uh, so, so if you are bringing uh, the focus of, uh, on these criterias, so if you don't have these you don't actually qualify to be a person. Now, there's a danger here and something that I've been working on trying to uh, understand it. It's a kind of like intersectionality of personhood, mm-hmm. right? The idea that you, you have to have these different markers, intersection of these markers to make you into a complete person. And if you don't have that, you have less value. Mm-hmm. If you only have one criteria, you have less value. But if you have four, you have more value as a person, right? right. A baby doesn't have all this, so it doesn't qualify to be a person. Yeah. Um, so while these might be the external markers, and we don't have to completely disregard this when we understand a person, as Christians, what we are trying to do is that we have to understand that um, we have to situate this on the fact that we have the image of God on us. And there are different ways to understand that, right? There is a way of uh, understanding the functional view of understanding the image of God, that we, we have the same kind of function, same kind of uh, representation. Uh, there's another dominion view of uh, the image of God, that we uh, have dominion over the cre- creation as God has dominion that he has given us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are different views to that. But I want to situate it in this uh, this particular thing, which only human beings have in one regard, is that God creates us in his image, male and female, right? And, and, and the idea of personhood or being human is constituted in that collective existence of male and female in one regard. What that points to is the Trinitarian grid to, to basically uh, give a foundation for personhood. There is this relationality as an obligating feature within the Trinity, the community of Trinity, right? Likewise, when God creates Adam, he creates all things good. But when it comes to Adam, he sees that he's not able to actually find a companion for him, right? And he, he, he calls it not good. Mm-hmm. It's not good for man to be alone. Though he was a person, his personhood gets actualized in the fact that he actually recognizes the other. So relationality or communion on the basis of love, and we can come to that in a while, right, becomes the foundational aspect from a Christian perspective to be a person. Um, and um, is that is that uh, Hegelian in some sense? Uh, 
are you familiar maybe with some of his stuff when it comes to how uh, others perceive their value when others and only when others perceive another's value uh, I think do, do you think that's because I mean I like that and also I, I believe uh, the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes actually also affirmed that which is and, and we won't get into the philosophy of, of these guys but would you say that Adam was not a complete person then? No, oh, absolutely okay. not. I mean, what I'm saying is that Adam was fully person, yeah. but personhood has to be actualized, right? Uh, Adam was not uh, within the community of Trinity. Adam was separate from God, right? Creator and creation distinction. Because right. we don't believe, believe in that idea of oneism like right. pantheism does. Right. We have that twoism, the idea of creator being separate from creation. Right. But the, the idea of personhood gets actualized. It is, it is uh, in one sense, it becomes functional in that community aspect of you know, Adam with Eve and uh, future generations. And that's an important aspect. I'm not saying that that's what makes him the person. He is a person prior to that, on, on the fact that God has created him to be in his image. Now, the reason why I pointed to that was because of this, right? This is none of what we were talking about just now. We can arrive at rationally or by reason. Right. right. The idea that we have the image of God is a revelation from God. This is why I think it, it, it will be a futile project to actually come to a set definition of what a person is. We can't do that. Neither right. can we do it about dignity as well. You right. can't situ- basically define dignity in a precise definition. Right. right. You can only define dignity by knowing what indignity is. Mm-hmm. Right. You can only know a person by knowing what not a person is. When we look at other beings, other living beings and non living beings, we know that they are not persons. Intuitively, we know right. that. But we look, when we look at an individual, we know what a person is. And that happens within that relationality aspect. So I firmly believe that relationality is an obligating feature of personhood. Like a necessary feature. It is. is that, okay. It is. That's yeah. why That's why the, even the commandment gets fulfilled. Of all the commandments, the greatest of all commandments is to love the Lord God with all your mind and soul and also your neighbor. Yeah. yeah. Right? We are loving God and we love our neighbors. And love is only possible. Again, right. love is only possible within the community of the Trinity. Right. That's where it, God is love, right? right. It's by, he by nature is love. And as human beings, as personal beings, being made in the image of God, we have that capacity to love, but love has to be relational. You have to love somebody. You have to love something. That's true. So I know uh, God is greater, is the greatest being ever, and so perhaps he gets to have three persons in in his uh, substance, right, In, in his godness. Uh, whereas for us, maybe we can only appreciate uh, another person, which could be our spouse. <laughs> That's one way you think about it in terms of love, because like you said, true love is uh, having uh, affection for another or wanting the best for another. Now, I suppose somebody can say, well, you can love yourself. I would say that That's that would not, not be positive, right. That, yes. that would not be a good kind of a love. That would be narcissistic. Yeah. Actually, that would be, which is interesting, right? Love for another is a great thing to have, but love for oneself, even though you might say it's the same kind of love, is actually the opposite of a good thing. It's a and, bad thing. And also, there is this thing from, from a Christian perspective when we talk about this relationality aspect and how love is situated within those relationships. We have to understand that. When Scripture says God is love, we can't flip that and say love is God, right. which our culture does. Right, right. So when it says God is love... <laughs> like the Beatles song, right? All you need is love. Right? And God yeah. sets the boundary around that, what it means to love, right? And therefore, in this, that... And that's only possible because God is... Only God's you know, um, potential is actual, mm-hmm. fully actual. Right, not ours, only God, and therefore He is the only one who can confer personhood. We don't have fully potential actuality. That's why we cannot confer personhood on others. 
God has done that to us because we are made in His image. And that's why it is possible for Him to be love by nature. In our case, we situate ourselves within the standard and the boundaries that God has set. We should actually. We try to violate that. That's what we're trying in our culture today. Right, right. Right? We are flipping and saying that love is God and anything goes. Right, and right. this is the reason why God can even command to love him. Now, I can't command you to love me, Harry. Yeah, right. Can I? I can't <laughs> command my wife like to, to love, right? None of right. us can command anyone to love us. Right, right. It has to be volitional. Whereas when it comes to God, God says, you know, he commands us to love him with all our mind, soul, and body and strength. Where was I going with this? I had this idea, and then I can't remember it now. Oh, yeah. I remember during your talk, um, I did appreciate the fact that uh, you highlighted the difficulty of defining personhood. And uh, like I said, reviewing Moreland and some of the other philosophers, and, and because it's a foundational thing, it is unanalyzable, all right? So that's the term that they use. And so I remember my reading of Calvin, John Calvin, one of our favorite uh, theologians, right? And so if if the project is to try to get to know us, ourselves, which to some degree and some level is a healthy thing. We need to know who we are. Mm -hmm. Um, But how do we really know that when, like I said, and you said too, right? The project of even defining who a person is, is is difficult. Well, John Calvin said, we have to look to God. We have to look yeah. to God. And you mentioned that ultimately we need to look to the God of the Bible because he has revealed himself in Scripture. And, and if his son, we, Jesus Christ. He said, course. who has seen me has seen the Father. That's right. Yeah. So in the example of Jesus, we if we know him, then we get to know ourselves. And and then John Calvin also said, well, because God could be totally other, and it's hard to get a concept of who God is, well, then we look inside ourselves and we get to know us as yes. well. So there's that symbiotic relationship. So John Calvin was absolutely right in that because there is that connection between persons, we yeah. as human beings— that have personhood given to us, and the giver mm-hmm. of person, which is God, the God of the Bible, which makes sense. It only can work that way. Yeah. And so you can imagine why there's a lot of confusion nowadays. There's a lot of disconnect because we have untethered ourselves from God. So we no longer know who we are, and we kind of know what's what's going on in culture today. Yeah. Lots of confusion with our own identity and Things yeah. like that, right? You know, uh, we are sported mirrors, someone said once, but we reflect the divine. And the reason that God is incomprehensible in many senses and that, that, that mystery remains in God, that's a beautiful thing. We, yeah. we, he reveals about himself. Likewise, because we reflect him and his image, we in many ways remain mysterious. Yeah. Therefore, so, so the, idea, the, the, the idea of personhood is too rich to be confined within a precise definition. Right. I agree. Right? I agree. And it's a beautiful thing. It we is. we don't have to struggle with it. We know sufficient about who we are. Yeah. And we know even better through the person of Jesus Christ. Right. In terms of our relationship with our maker and he reveals about us each day even more through his word. You know, one of my favorite verses I'm going to share right now is is found in 2 Peter 3 and 4. I'm going to read it. To me, this is like one of those, you read it and you're either, uh, you know, you come away scratching your head or you are just jumping up and down in a, like a eureka moment, right? But here's what the text says. Again, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's verse 3. That's already rich. But verse 4 is even amazing, right? And in fact, I'm going to use the term, uh, the traditional way we understand the, the word awful. This is awful. Mm. <laughs> not, not bad, but full of awe. Awesome. Right? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, this is really where you get the word awesome and awful. By which he has granted to us his precious 
and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Mm. Oh, my goodness. We're partakers of the divine nature. nature. We're small g gods. We're like God. We're not gods. Like, don't, don't hear us wrong here. We're not, we're not uh, subscribing to a cult here or inventing a cult, but we're like God. There's nothing wrong with saying that we are like God. Hmm. Uh, oh, my goodness. Genesis tells us we were created in his image. Yes. That literally is and, what it is. And I believe this idea of uh, uh, personhood is also actualized in the fact that we have dominion Yes. over the creation that God has given us. Right. We are here to represent that King of Kings and Lord of Lords and, and, and His Lordship. That's why the idea of kingdom of God is so beautiful and necessary for the gospel, right? right. That we, we talk about how God's way uh, uh, you know, uh, permeates into all aspects of our life. I know that is uh, crazy, and and that should be a show in it of itself. The whole yeah. kingdom of God and <laughs> responsible dominion, what it means to bear God's image, and specifically ap- applied to the world, and, yes. ha- and how we're supposed to be in charge of it. And and we're talking about the whole world, His whole creation. So that's going to be another show, right? For sure. Yeah. yeah. But um, what are some of the uh, all right? As we ha- close, you know, we have probably. Uh, 90 seconds left. What are some of the uh, maybe parting words you'd like to share to our listeners? I would say that uh, we need to re-enchant our world, starting with our own family, with the right hermeneutics of personhood. We have to teach our children and give them the confidence that the Word of God gives us. Psalm 8 talks about that uh, we are crowned with glory and honor. Yes, we, we are broken. But Christ has redeemed us, right? He has restored our true dignity. He has given us a hope and a future. And that needs to be communicated. And I would say, let's start with self, but also let's start it with our family as a unit. And if we do that, we will definitely be creating more of a flourishing society. And people will look at us and know that we serve a living God. Well, you have been listening to Apologetics.com radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you've learned some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. So special thanks to uh, Dr. Jacob Daniel. Thanks for your research. Thanks for the talk you had. I'm sure that it'll be available at Reasonable Truth uh, at some point. Right. And so um, thanks to Cole, our engineer back there, making sure we sound great on the air. So special thanks to our listeners. Until next time, good night.